Welcome back to the Trailline Podcast, brought to you by DeepView. I'm your host, Richard Moglin, and joining us today is John Pokoroba, uh, who is the co-leader of the Boston IBD Meetup, and uh, he's also a veteran growth stock trader with over 20 years' experience in the markets. Uh, John, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, speak with me today. Hey, Richard. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, glad to have you, and let's go ahead and dive right in, and, and my First question is always kind of about people's backgrounds, how they first got interested in the market. So I love to hear how you got first started in this business and uh, yeah, basically how you, how you developed your style. Sure. Sure. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story going back to the eighties. Uh, the um, I was in college and um, me and a couple of their buddies had a friend We called him big Mike and he graduated from college and he was a stockbroker. This is around 86 or 87. And he would send us tips. We're still in college. And he would send us tips saying, oh, you got to invest in this stock. So three of us got together and we pooled together about $5,000 and we put it in this stock and the stock that you remember, it was called Archer Communications. I didn't know what they did, but that was the name. And um, within three months, the stock uh, went to, you know, the $5,000 actually grew to 25,000 in three months. We were like, wow, this is really easy. Um, So after we did that, the, the broker said, well, I have another tip for you. And it's a stock that's $1.50. He said it's called Foliage Plus, And they make these fake plant materials, which are going to be in the lobby of every office building across the country. So, of course, what did we do as young kids in college? We rolled all the money into Foliage Plus, And we had, you know, 16,000 shares or 16,500 shares of this company thinking that, uh, wow, we're going to make a fortune. Well, Nothing ever really happened, and within within about a year, uh, the stock was delisted. It went from a dollar fifty to, to nothing, so it was all gone. So in a very very quick amount of time, we saw the highs and lows of trying to invest um, in the market. Um, when I graduated, I eventually in I think 1990, I came across Bill's book. Um, you know, read his book, and it made a lot of sense um, in terms of the growth stock and it was a system. And so um, I really started to got fascinated with the market in the sense that, wow, this is something that you you could buy something, hold it and sell it and make a profit all by essentially making decisions. Wow. This is amazing. You're just making good, if you make good decisions, you know, you can make money simplistic. um, But it was something that got me really excited about the market and saying, you know, I really want to be an investor. So that's how I got started. Yeah. And, and what's kind of unique uh, about you and what you really want to touch on in this presentation is uh, this isn't, you're not a full-time investor. You do this on the side in a very professional manner, uh, but you're kind of representing the folks who, you know, have a full-time job, but can also spend the time to approach this the right way and use can slim system uh, to, you know, go about it and make serious, serious income on the side as well. So I'd love to kind of hear about that and, and your experience trading while also having a, a full-time job. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm anxious to do this interview because I'm not a professional investor. Um, I do have a job. I'm an architect. I have a full time job, but I actually take a very serious, you know, uh, you know, I take the market seriously, invest seriously. So, um, you know, and I think that in itself brings about challenges uh, with how you can do that. Um, you know, you have to. Part of it is about being. I think when you're doing a job and you're trying to invest in the market, you have to be really, really well organized yeah. because time is so precious. You know, you don't have unlimited time on the weekends or in the evenings. 
So you really, routine becomes very, very important. And over the years, you know, I've refined a routine that works for me based on my time frame. And I'm a position trader, a growth stock position trader. That's how I focus. Um, from time to time, I'll do some swing trading. Uh, if the market is um, not in the solid uptrend, but it's kind of the rare occasion. It's mostly I'm still looking for um, to build positions. Yeah, perfect. And I definitely want to dive into routines because that's kind of my favorite topic to talk about. But uh, first, I want to take a step back and um, ask you, were there any kind of aha moments, key turning points in uh, you know your trading journey, how you kind of developed your style? Obviously, you picked up Bill's book that, that was a big step uh, but were there any kind of key market cycles or you know individual trades that really had an impact uh, on how you approach the markets yeah there there's some things along the way one of them is um, you know I was really into my career in the late 90s so I really did I was dabbling in stocks but I would say I was not serious um, you know you have a couple of good trades you have a couple of bad trades they kind of balance out and you don't make a lot of progress so I didn't capitalize on the dot-com market. Um, but by 2003, 2004, as the market was starting to turn, um, you know, IBD was offering a lot of workshops, you know, level one, two, three, four. And I kept saying for years and years, I'd say, I'm skipping that workshop because it's just too expensive. This one's $800, that one's $1,500. And I really kept, um, just wouldn't do it, wouldn't make the plunge. And then um, I think it was 2004, I actually went to New York City, I went to a level two workshop and everything really came together and it accelerated my learning curve so fast. Yep. And I got so much out of that day in New York City that no longer did I think, you know, spending 800 or $1,500 was expensive anymore. Cause I said, this is saving time. This is accelerating my education in the market. And um, so I, I would start to use that as the benchmark, whatever the cost of the workshop is, I would ask myself and say, well, can I invest this in this workshop and make that money at least with my trading? And when I looked at it that way, you know, nine times out of 10, you're like, yes, I should be able to. And then it was definitely worth the investment. So that was kind of an aha moment, which was really about investing around good practices, good systems to, um, get you started off on the right foot, because if you don't start off on the right foot, you get into a lot of bad habits and bad habits. Even if you're making money, you're going to, they're going to come around and they're going to come back later and they're going to hit you when you weren't prepared. So bad habits and they're harder to relearn if you use bad habits for a long time. Yeah. They'll so cost you in the long run. They will cost you in the long run for sure. Yeah. And outside that workshop, um, have there been any kind of key resources that have really helped you uh, improve your trading or just kind of find a community of traders that, that has helped you as, as well? I think it's important um, for any trader to have a couple of kind of trading buddies or people that you bounce ideas off of. Um, I have some people from the Boston IPD meetup. You know, we would typically uh, on a Sunday night, we'd get together for an hour and we'd talk about the market talk about ideas that we might see in the market, stock you know, tickers. Um, and it's a, just a good to bounce off ideas. And there's also a support system there that sometimes if you've made a few bad trades or you're in a, you know, in a funk, um, they can bring you up again, you know, right. by helping you out and uh, supporting you and, and getting you back on track. And I find that's helpful to have a kind of a small circle of, uh, I guess you call them trading buddies 
that you can bounce ideas off of. I think that's helpful because, you know, trading is a, in itself is kind of a lonely business. You know, you, it's all about you in your head and making trades and sitting in front of a screen and it can be pretty isolating. So it's, um, I think it's important to have a, a small circle that you, you feel comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. And, and now I'd love to kind of uh, pivot back to, to your routines. Um, and you put out some excellent uh, YouTube videos, really diving deep into the markets and, and what's going on there, looking at parallels, all that. Uh, so, you know, starting from your, the perspective of your weekend routine, I'd love to hear kind of what your process is to analyze the market, uh, determine if, you know, what the health of the market is, find ideas, and then, you know, also, you know, just, just, you know, be aware of how aggressive you want to be in that, in that, in that current time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I'll start with what my daily routine is. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I work, so, uh, you know, you want to be, I want to be pretty precise about how I spend my time. And I have my, my daily routine each night. I'll spend about 60 minutes. Sometimes it goes to 90 if the market is really moving and there's things I really, really want to go deeper on, but it's about a 60 minute routine. And, um, what I do initially is I look at the breadth of the market mm -hmm. relative to the indexes. I want to get a sense of uh, what sectors or stock groups are performing relative to the indexes. Is, is the breadth of the market stronger or weaker? Um, and how I do that is looking at the sector ETFs. And I also all every day I look at new highs and new lows to see if we're at net, net new highs, net new lows, to see if the, the environment is uh, you know, constructive. Um, from there, I have uh, I go through my growth stock watch list, and then I have a list of kind of the leading stocks in the current market. Mm -hmm. And those lists are about 40 to 50 stocks that I will go through just really quickly and run through the charts, um, see where they're, what's happening with those to get a sense of, of the leaders, are the leaders breaking down, are the leaders holding up better than the indexes, et cetera. And then I'll drill down one more level, to look at my holdings. I look at my holdings and I'm trying to say to myself, should I be you know, increasing exposure? Should I be you know, raising stops, cutting losses? So I'll review my own holdings and then I will, um, usually wrap up with uh, my plan for the next day saying, do I need to make any changes or adjustments to my positions? Either I'm a, you know, raising stops or gonna put a buy stop in to buy something, et cetera. And so that routine's about an hour, uh, maybe a little longer in a good market. Um, but that's, I've got that kind of down pat. Yeah. Um, now on a, on a weekly basis, um, what I do is, I generally am looking at my general market update, the next one I'm gonna do, and I'm looking for ideas. So I kind of think about, you know, what are the themes in the market that I might play into the general market update? Um, I will use the Market Smith Growth 250 as kind of um, a list that I'll go through it again to look at the groups, look at the names. Um, I will look at some other lists they have relative to high relative strength stocks. Um, to get a sense of, you know, again, trying to find where the strength of the market is, the themes. Um, and if I see a few that are around a theme, then I'll go a little deeper. I might spend a little time looking at researching a company uh, that I'll go a little deeper in terms of what's driving their growth, what's their potential uh, growth estimates for the coming year or two. Um, and then I always, on the weekends, I always have two or three research projects that I'm working on at one time. 
So on the weekends, I'll put a little bit of time into my research projects uh, or the studies that I'm working on and try to bring some of those into the um, into the uh, general market updates or a Boston meetup, et cetera. But, um, you know, it, those are those are generally what I've done on the weekends, what I'm doing. I, I will say that um, I know a lot of people look at thousands of stocks every weekend. And, and, and if that's important to the routine, that's great. Um, I tend not to be a huge screener in terms of looking at thousands of stocks. Um, I actually have a couple of resources that um, that I subscribe to that do good do good lists. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do is rather than me going through thousands of charts, I hit these lists and in my immediate world of stocks to look at is much, much smaller. Um, and I'll get it down to like, you know, 50, 70 stocks. It saves time. And that's really important for somebody who's not doing this full time. So that's a little tip. Um, there's nothing wrong with, I'll say, outsourcing um, a reliable source that looks for growth stocks. And there's a lot of them out there that do that. So that's a little tip that I use in terms of time management. Yep, for sure. And um, when, when you're considering an idea, how much of your process is fundamental versus technical? How much do you care about, you know, what the chart action is, the technical action versus the story, the earnings, the sales, whatever fundamentals you kind of deem most important? Yeah, there, it's, there's both. Um, on the fundamental side, um, over the years, uh, when you first start out, I used to always be looking at, you know, I'll say the rear view mirror, which is past sales, past earnings. Um, I kind of moved away from that because it's the rear view mirror. I tend to look more now at what is the forward estimates for earnings? What is the sales ramp look like for the next, you know, 12 months? I'm trying to see if, um, if the estimates are good and they're, they're showing increases, then I will look deeper into say, well, what's driving that? Is there a product? Is there a service? Is there something unique in the marketplace, whether it be a theme like, AI or, or, or what have you, EV, vehicles, et cetera, um, to get a sense. If, and if those look really good, um, that's really all I'm looking for on the fundamental side. So I can usually size that up fairly quickly. Um, and then I do place a lot of emphasis on the technicals. Um, you know, I do believe, you know, chart reading is really, really important. And it's important because you're looking for the clues is, is the stock being accumulated? Right. And that's the, that's the game you're playing because you know, your goal is to, if you can really find a stock that's being accumulated, your, your job is to jump on board that train at the appropriate time because they move the stock, you're just a passenger. But if, you're, um, if your timing's right, and you can pick up the clues and get a good entry, you know, it could be a good ride. <laughs> so a um, lot of emphasis on chart reading, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot. I do try to find uh, places within bases um, that I can find some early entries that are not as obvious as common breakouts uh, to try to find some of the more uh, hidden entries, if you will, using a few techniques to, to kind of stay away from the crowd following the breakouts, which which can work in a strong bull market. But as we've seen, when the market's not strong, they are uh, they can be deadly. Yeah. And sometimes you can manage risk a little bit tighter, a little bit earlier on bef- before we get to that, you know, key point. Right. Yep. And 
you know, you, you mentioned the clues that you look for in the chart. What what are some examples of, you know, technical characteristics that to you would tell you that a stock is being accumulated? Yeah, in the base, um, a number of things you can look for. Um, one thing that I would look for is just looking for big blue volume spikes, really simple. It says, look, especially on the right side, you want to see, you know, the volume that might be uh, red or pink turning to more blue spikes. And when you start seeing the blue spikes, I like to see the stock close the week on a weekly chart at the peak of the peak of the week. So if you right. see a stock for two or three weeks in a row that closes at the peak and it's kind of steadily closing a little higher each week, that's usually a sign that's a big buyer in there that's kind of sucking up all the shares by the end of the week and they're accumulating um, a position. The other thing that's important is um, watching the relative strength line um, as that's happening. Um, you know, it's not so much relative, the, num the number of the relative strength line, the, whether it's an 87. To me, I'm looking at the slope, the slope yep. of the line. Is it steep? Is it kind of pointed towards, you know, one o'clock? It's kind of rising up. Is it also important to notice that the relative strength line doesn't have a lot of kinks in it? It, it fits fairly moving up. It only has little kind of little bends down versus being erratic. Um, that's a sign that there's something more substantially being accumulated and the strength of the stock is, is improving. Um, tight closes are always good. Um, when you do have some red weeks or red days, you know, you want to see that volatility, the range to contract, and you want to see volume to contract. Those are all positive, constructive signs uh, that, you know, the base is, is really starting to mature. So those are some clues that I'll be looking for. Yeah, perfect. And going back to, you know, have, having a full-time job and your daily routine, I'm sure a lot of people who are kind of in a similar boat as you are kind of wondering uh, how you enter positions, whether uh, you use buy stops or simply kind of set alerts, uh, take a you know quick peek at, at, at the chart once, once that alert fires off and then enter. Um, yeah, what's kind of your process for entering a position as well as, you know, on the sell side as well, because that's similar, similar. Yeah, I do set a lot of, a lot of alerts. Sometimes um, I'll put an alert um, that is, you know, maybe it's a point away from the actual buy point. Yep. So I get an alert that says, hey, something's happening with this stock. It might be buyable soon. So I will take a look at the chart um, and see if it's worthy of you know, maybe putting in an order. It would be a you know, buy stop order uh, with a limit on it um, as well. So I do that. Sometimes um, if I know I have a really busy day at work, I'll just put the buy stop limit order in there and just say, this is where I want it. This is how much I'm willing to pay. And I just put it in there. And if it triggers, great. If it doesn't, then um, I usually put it in for the day. And each night I will look at those orders and say, do I want to re-enter this? Has something changed? Um, and I'll either re-enter it or maybe I take it off and move away from it. But um, yeah, when you're, when you're working, you know, you're not in front of the screen. Um, call them pre-alerts that are kind of the stock getting close to a pivot um, is helpful. But many times you just have to put your, your buy stop limit in and see if it triggers. Yeah. And do you have any kind of general advice for people who are working full-time, but also want to, you know, approach training in a very serious manner and, and, you know, have it, have it be, you know, a key thing that they're working on, even though they can't spend too much time during the day watching the screens. Yeah, I think, I think the key thing, is, you know, if you really, really want to get good results in the market, 
you're going to have to, uh, the market has to become part of your life, so to speak. And by what I mean by that is you have to commit, you know, a certain amount of time each day relative to the market, whether it be, like you said, this is where routine becomes so important. You know, some people can spend an hour in meetings. Some people say, you know, if you're not married, you don't have kids, you don't have a lot of other responsibilities, you can say, I could spend two or three hours every night, maybe. So it's important to have a routine, say, I will do this every night um, because it's the market literally becomes a part of your life. I can't remember the market not looking at the market, whether I'm vacationing or not. You need to stay in touch. Um, even if you're not placing trades, and this is really important. You know, in a bear market, you might say, hey, I've taken a few losses, not a good market. So therefore, I'm just going to not look at the market and, you know, I'll come back in three months. That's a mistake. You can't, you just won't be on top of where the leadership's coming from, what the themes are, what's going on in the market. So even if you're not placing trades, it's important to have a routine that looks at what's going on in the general market to be ready if the opportunity happens and the market changes, you need to be there to buy. Um, so you need to be organized. You need to have a routine. Um, but you also have to, I'll say, make the commitment. And this is important. It's a commitment to say, I'll be spending some time on the market every day <laughs> in some to, to some degree. That's important. And, and that in itself, some people might relish that. But some people might say, well, I don't want to do that. And that's okay. But I, I think if you're, if you're not diligent and really serious about um, getting better results, it's difficult. It's really difficult. You can't, you can't get great results by hopping in, hopping out part-time. It just doesn't work that way. And I think, um, you know, you, you don't want to have yourself open to tips and rumors and what somebody else says, you know, you eventually, it really comes down to you need to observe the market. You need to make your own decisions and avoid all the get rich tips. I mean, I, you never heard a market wizard ever say, I got really successful and rich because I had a series of tips. Market wizards don't say that. <laughs> okay. They've all put in the time. They've perfected their craft. They have a great system and they've earned it. You know, they earned it because they put the time in, into it. So, uh, you know, it does require a commitment of time. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, you, you've got to be in tune with the market and showing up every day is a big part of that. I 100% agree. Um, and when you're actually placing your orders, uh, do, you, do you trade off a, a desktop computer or are you, you know, at work trading off your phone as well? I think that's something that people might be interested in. Uh, I've done both. Yeah. I've done both. You know, if I'm at, if I'm at a desktop computer, I'll, I'll do it from a desktop computer just because of convenience. But sometimes if you're traveling for work or as, as you know, Richard, if you're on a plane and you're traveling yeah. around and say, boy, it's handy to have the phone, you get those alerts. And if you have to go to your broker and place a trade, um, it's nice to have that convenience too, to be able to place a trade. Uh, just make sure if you get on a plane, you have all your stops in place. Yep. For sure. For sure. Um, and uh, you've kind of coined a term, uh, the, the triangle, which it kind of is, is talking about, you know, how you can have success in the markets. I love, uh, I know you've got a slide prepared about that. I'd love to uh, have you talk through that and kind of, uh, yeah, discuss what that concept is. Yeah, sure. Let me, let me call the slide. Okay. So just putting it into context, you know, I'm a growth stock trader and I'm a position trader. So that's my time frame. So 
you know, in that frame of mind, you know, what's my goal? My goal is to get this triangle correct. And it's the magic triangle in a way because it has three sides. One, you want to be in the biggest leading stock of the market. You eventually want to build that position size so it's a large position size. And you want to have a good average cost with cushion so you can uh, ride out the position. Now, it's very difficult to get all three sides of that triangle to be in place. Um, you know, option A, which happens often is you say, look, I've got a large position size and I've got the big leading stock, but I have no cushion. And if you get a lot of size and you have no cushion, you're really going to be under pressure for even a normal pullback. It's going to be a lot of pressure if you have large size and you're likely to get shaken out because you have no cushion. Um, the second scenario is you have really good size, you have really good cushion, but you say, I'm not in the market leader. You know, I'm in some secondary stock that can work um, and give you some good returns, but it's not the ultimate triangle. And the third is you have the big leader of the market um, and you have good cushion, but you have no size. You know, you have a 5% position and the stock triples and you say it doesn't really make a big impact to your account because you didn't have that third part of the triangle. So this is the goal that I'm seeking. And like I said, it's very difficult to get all three of these right in all the moving parts of the market, but that's the goal that I'm after. And do you have any advice for traders out there who, you know, want to get better at identifying, you know, what the leader is? Obviously, that's a, that's a big question, and you know, you know, that's that's the name of the game. But what what kind of tips do you have for to help people identify what are the top leadership stocks in that market cycle? Yeah, this is where all your homework comes in. Um, when you're reviewing things every night around the weekend, you're saying, where is the strength of the market? What's the relative strength? Are there groups? You know, right now the chip stocks are one of the, the stronger groups. You know, what's the groups? And then once you get into the groups, you got to really be discerning and say, well, who is the leader? Who is the institutional leader? Mm -hmm. Not just the retail leader, because sometimes you get these thin stocks that, you know, they can work, but they can also... Um, die pretty quickly if they have a small customer base or they have a bad earnings report. And you know, who you want to find out who the liquid leader is because the institutions drive the market. And if you can identify that stock, um, you know, you're you got a much better chance that it's going to be accumulated. And accumulation by multiple funds is going to take months and months right. and months. So that works to your advantage. Um, so it's a process that you have to keep you know, what's going on for themes? What are the groups doing? Where's the relative strength? And if you can find the right groups, then you got to drill down. And, you know, the semiconductors, you know, they're all, they're all moving, but some are showing signs that they're, they're more of the leaders than others. So, you know, certainly NVIDIA is acting very, very strong. And that can be an institutional favorite, particularly institutions like growth stocks that they can deliver, you know, consistent 25, 30% earnings. Um, and these are big, big, big companies. Institutional investors love that with the liquidity they provide. They can take large positions and not worry about getting trapped in a small stock. Like I know there's a number of them, AEHR, and ALGM. They're, they're acting very well, but they're fairly thin. Um, and you just have to understand the risk that comes inherent with that. 
there's nothing wrong with it as long as you understand the risk you're taking um, in a name like that. And is there kind of a liquidity threshold that you like a stock to meet, uh, either in terms of you know dollar volume traded a day, average dollar volume, or maybe it's in terms of number of shares and, and price of the stock? Um, I don't really have an average daily dollar volume target. I generally don't like trading things under $20 per share. Um, they're just, they're just, um, they tend to be thinner. I mean, there are obviously are some that have big floats. Um, so there are exceptions, but in general, I prefer it's over $20 a share. I think when you're a young trader, you, you kind of think, well, I want to buy the most number of shares. So I want to buy a $10 stock or a $5 stock because I'll have a thousand shares or 2000 shares. Right. And that's a mistake. You're, you're really much better off buying a stock that's $200 a share, $300 a share. Who cares if you own 10 shares or 30 shares, um, even if the stock is you know $500 a share. So that's, when you're starting out, it's about, it's all about, it's just dollars invested look at it as dollars invested and the percentages of gain and loss relative to that. Um, but in general, I generally don't like to go below 20 unless it's something really, really special. Yep. Makes sense. And going back to what you're talking about with, in terms of leadership, um, I know uh, you like to look back in the past, look at precedents, both in the market and stocks. Um, are there any kind of, um, key leaders uh, in the market cycles that you've traded that you think would be good for everybody watching to go back and study, whether, you know, it's Tesla in 2020, that was kind of the leader. Uh, but if you have any other examples, you know, thinking back, I think that'd be great. Well, I think, first of all, I'll say that studying past leaders is well worth your time. Um, for those of you who don't know, I did a study of the 55 greatest winning stocks from 2003 to 2020, so it's two decades, and it was the best of the best growth stocks. And when you're just studying those um, in a really methodical way is very, very helpful. Um, I particularly looked at, um, I wanted to really go further about the 10-week moving average. And I, re I know there's a lot of debate that people say, well, what's a 10-week moving average break? Is it 1% of the break of the line, 2% break of the line, 4% break of the line? Everybody has a little bit of a different interpretation. Um, so in that study, I, I, I studied all these big winners and I tried to uh, analyze with a rule set, a specific rule set about where you would um, be forced to sell the stock or you could hold, even though it broke the 10-week moving average line. Great exercise to understand because it helps you create more for your own rule set. So when you do get in a big leading stock and they all eventually will come back to the 50 day or the 10 week moving average line, you will apply your rule set because you have some confidence in how the stock, if it's a true model book stock, how it's supposed to act. You'll know if it's being normal action or abnormal action. So that can be very, very helpful. Um, so studying model book stocks is, it's important. Um, just as a note, actually, I'm going to be speaking to Molly's World on March 25th on a Saturday. And I'm actually going to do a model book stock simulation. And I picked uh, Shopify. So mm -hmm. I'm going to do a simulation of Shopify from 2016 to 2021 when it finally peaked out. Um, 
So there's a lot of good lessons in that stock, though it was very difficult. You wouldn't have been able to hold it for the whole move just because you went through two bear markets, but a lot of good lessons are learned from that stock. And what were kind of the key lessons that you learned from that study of the 55 grid stocks uh, during that period? What were some kind of key things that uh, maybe surprised you or just kind of reinforced uh, lessons that you learned from Bill O'Neill or, or other, you know, other market research? Yeah, again, I, I got it deeply into the 10-week moving average. Um, and I also studied how long can the stock be under the 10-week moving average and still be considered normal to base out and continue. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised that, um, and, and I think Bill at workshops would mention that a big leading stock could go under the 10-week moving average for up to like six to seven weeks and still be okay and form a base and kind of continue to break out and go further. And that, that's kind of interesting because you say you can go there and still be okay. Six or seven weeks seems like an awful long time. Now, obviously your time frame is key. You know, if you're a swing mm -hmm. trader, you're not probably going to hold the stock that long. But if you're in a position trader and you have a good cushion and it's a normal pullback to the 10-week moving average, um, it's important to have patience that the move is not necessarily going to be over if it doesn't break your rules. Now, if a stock stays under the 10-week moving average for 8, 9, 10, 11 weeks, there's probably something wrong because it should be moving again. Um, so that would be a clue that I'll say is not an obvious clue to most people, but it's something that I learned during the study that I think was, um, Bill talked about it, but I guess I've convinced myself by seeing it on the charts of studying some of the leaders that it did um, that it did uh, hold true. Um, and most of the big winning stocks from that study, they only had one break of the 10 week moving average for the first half of the major move. Mm. And then the second half of the major move, they broke the 10 week about twice. So that was kind of important because we know that big growth stocks, you know, they tend to run, um, their move usually runs from anywhere from 18 to 24 months, you know, somewhere around 21 months is a kind of a sweet spot. So you have to be aware that the clock's running on a big stock that's moving and, uh, you know, understanding where the breaks are occurring. Is it halfway through the move? Is it, is it, is it almost near the end of the move? So those are key things. They're subtle, but they can help you hold a big leader to hopefully the end when it either climaxes or it's a failed late stage base and it's time to get out of the stock or you just see signs of distribution. Yeah, perfect. And do you have any advice for traders who want to do their own kind of study of the greatest performing stocks? You know, things that you learned that, you know, you wish you knew at the very beginning. We were kind of talking earlier about, you know, defining what the study is actually going to be so it doesn't grow and grow and grow. Uh, but yeah, do you have any kind of general advice for people who want to do their own research like that? Yeah, studies studies are something that I've taken a liking to. Um, now, it's interesting. This started with you know, you go to a few IBD workshops and you always hear them talking about, you know, model books. And they'd say, oh, yeah, the model book for this market cycle, the model book for that market cycle. But it was kind of mysterious because they'd never show you the model book. They'd never show you a physical book. And they'd never really show it. They just, they would just refer to it. And so over the years going to workshops, I would really pay attention to how they tracked data in terms of measuring things. Um, and how they 
um, tracked things. And so over the years, I said, well, if I'm going to do a study, I'm going to try and make it um, similar in terms of metrics and measurements that IBD would use. And that would allow me to kind of benchmark my work. So I was able to do some studies knowing some of the, of the, the results of some of the model book studies that IBD did. And I could either say, wow, that was confirmed in my study, or maybe something new was learned in my study. So um, me and a few trading buddies, we've done um, two mar bull market cycle model books. We did the 2012 to 15 uh, bull market. And then we did another model book from the 2016 through 18 bull market and learned a great deal um, in those studies. And some of the stuff was really interesting, the parallels to previous IBD model books. That was good. We're, we're currently working on the COVID market, the 2021 uh, model book, which is really a little unusual because stocks didn't have time to set up in, I'll say, proper bases. You know, if you use MarketSmith, you know, it kind of um, flags the, the basis for you. Well, there were no bases in COVID. Things just happened. So we've had to adapt our rules a little bit to find out where was the breakout point, where are we going to measure things from? Um, and we've, we've made those adjustments. So it was a unique time period during COVID. Um, but we're, we're uh, almost done with that model book. I think by May we'll be completed with that. And maybe at a Boston IBD meetup, we'll share some of the key insights that we learned. Yeah, perfect. And I, I know another topic that uh, you've looked into and you're about to do a workshop on is the earnings gaps and, and how traders can, can profit from those. And I, I think you're going to share one setup as well. Uh, in, in this podcast, but can you talk a little bit first about, you know, why you decided to do this study and kind of, um, you know, some of the key findings as well. Yeah, actually, um, I've teamed up actually with TickerMonkey.com, Jason Thompson, and um, we decided to do a study on earnings reaction gaps. And we decided to do that, I think, for two reasons. One, when you look at model book stocks, you will find that many times the initial breakout was from an earnings reaction gap where there was a catalyst to that company's earnings and sales that um, you know ignited a really big move and so that was kind of the impetus to say well let's look at this closer and um, you know gaps are big signs of demand so um, we decided to go deeper and because one of the reasons was we didn't know of any other study that was done um, on earnings gaps that we were aware of that combined a lot of research, data gathering, earnings surprise. Um, we got into the fundamentals to the point of saying which fundamentals really matter and which ones don't really matter in gaps. And then uh, the study, um, the important part of the study is we took all this information to extract the key insights and characteristics of big winning gaps and the study has been, is gonna be turned into a workshop where we um, develop buy strategies and say, how can we actually use this in our trading? And we did it in such a way that there are buy strategies in the workshop that are for day traders, uh, swing traders, as well as position traders. So we go through some, some basic buy strategies that might be appropriate for position traders, even people that are not full-time traders, people like myself that have a job, um, another job. And also we get into some fairly advanced gap buying that occurs in um, after hours, the extended markets. So there's strategies that we're going to cover 
that how can you take advantage of the actual earnings report coming out um, and there's strategies to use in the aftermarket and also how do you find some key levels to use when the stock actually breaks out on the earnings reaction day so we're excited about um, you know sharing that in the workshop because it's kind of uh, showing um, at multiple time frames how you can take advantage of gaps and what what surprised you most um, after after doing this study was there kind of one thing that stood out that you're like wow uh, I, I wouldn't have thought this before we actually went ahead and looked at all these examples um, was was there anything that stood out like that yeah there were a couple things um, some things uh, were more of confirmation and some things were uh, enlightening um, one of the things that is important with earnings gaps is earnings surprise. Mm -hmm. You know, how much does a company um, surprise the street? And that's usually an important catalyst. And we found that generally if the earnings surprise is greater than 20%, um, it's, it can be meaningful mm -hmm. um, to a stock making a move. Um, and we also did some research that showed that if you get a big gap up, I'll say really big volume, and you get at least a 20% earnings surprise, um, what we learned was the next two quarters were more earnings surprise because mm. we looked at it and said, wow, that first one, you can almost expect it was a high probability that they were going to um, surprise again in the next two quarters. And it's important because when you want to get on board a big growth stock that's going to run for 18 to 24 months. You're going to have to hold through a couple of earnings reports. So if you can get some odds stacked, that show you some edge to say, you know, we want to try and build a position that we can hold through earnings with some cushion. Um, you could be really well positioned to take advantage of that big model book stock. So um, the front view mirror um, relative to earnings surprise was, was pretty important uh, that we learned uh, relative to that. And we did not find a big correlation with um, the rear view mirror about well, what was the previous earnings report? It didn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, in interesting. And, and one other question I have is, uh, did you take a look at, you know, how much overhead supply uh, the stock had after the earnings gap, like whether it was kind of deep within, you know, a downtrend versus, you know, breaking out to all-time highs? Uh, did that seem to have an impact on, on how successful uh, a stock was after that earnings gap? Yeah, we actually kind of categorize some of the gaps. You know, there's kind of breakaway gaps that come leaping out of a base with no overhead supply. Um, they tend to perform really well. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also identified some other types that were stocks that were gapping on a, they gapped up and had earnings surprise, but they were still within a base. Mm -hmm. And we looked at those and categorized those. And some of them, um, we looked at how long it took for the stock to actually get out of that base. And we kind of used to found a 30-day time frame was helpful to look at. Some of them broke out and within 30 days. Um, you know, it took 30 days after the initial gap to get out of the base. So um, we did look at that. It's part of the study. We go over that in detail to help people when they, you know, one of the things that is tricky is to say, how do I identify, how do I identify the best gaps to potentially trade? What are the characteristics? And that's what the study goes over and the workshop is going to go over in great detail.
Perfect. And I'd love to go over the example that you prepared today and just kind of talk through uh, the basic strategy that you're going to share and, and uh, yeah, how traders can make use of, of this type of setup. Sure, sure. I'm going to pull a page. This is a page um, from, the, from the workbook. Um, this is a fairly basic strategy. Um, I would call this probably more of a position trader strategy. And the way we've set up the workshop and the, and the study is on the right, we try to give people what we call kind of a template. And you'll notice here we call it template A. This is you know, ideas of how you buy on strength. And um, so in this example, you know, when you get a big gap up, this particular strategy is looking at buying at the close, near the close in the last 10 minutes of the day, um, basically buying as the stock closes um, as a strategy. And we also look at the first reaction if you didn't buy at the close. So the example shows if you buy at the close, that's great. Now, if you didn't buy at the close, we basically don't recommend chasing the stock. Don't chase the stock. You're going to have to wait to the first reaction. And one of the tools that we use and we tested was using the five EMA. And a stock, you know, when you have the high volume close, the stock will tend to come back towards the, the high volume close and you'll get a, um, touch or a slight undercut of the five EMA, that could be a place to enter if you didn't buy on the gap day. And I mentioned that because position traders that, you know, have full-time jobs, they say, I missed it. I missed it. And we try to show people with these templates and examples, you didn't miss it. There's still other ways to get into the stock. This is, happens to be an example. And on the left, you'll see this is the example in uh, with Roku from 2019. You know, the stock the stock gapped out, had a high volume close. In this example, we said buy at the end of the day using a simple 5% stop. Um, you could have bought the stock, put your initial stop in. The stock you know, was up 21% on big volume. Then the stock again followed through, fantastic. Had some very strong days. And then you got this, just like the template shows, here's the, the first pullback reaction. And this orange line is the five day exponential moving average. So if you didn't buy on the gap close, you could have drawn a little downtrend line at the touch of the five. You could have bought it right there as well. And at that point, you probably would have moved your stop up to probably break even at that point if that was uh, you had made two buys. And in this case, you know, the stock was very strong. It actually held the five day exponential moving average um, really, really well, which is rare. Um, but it did. and It actually kind of blew off and it was, you know, it was time to sell into this little climax. Um, but that's an example of how this, the workshop is going to show people kind of templates and then actual examples. Um, this one happened to be buying at the close. We have strategies for buying on the open. Um, we have these post gap day buying strategies. And then we get into um, a lot of advanced stuff with extended hours um, and a lot of other time frames. So it gets into some pretty advanced stuff. You know, Jason Thompson. My partner in the workshop is going to bring a lot of interesting techniques um, to the workshop on some advanced stuff for those of you that are advanced traders. Okay, great. And, and what are some key things that uh, traders should remember while like uh, managing risk on this type of setup? Because inherently it can feel scary when you've got this gap up. Uh, in this case, 21%, it feels like, you know, there's just air below the stock, uh, but really it's, it's a sign of, you know, incredible strength, surprising the market. Um, and that's what's causing this big gap up. But um, often ranges can be pretty wide, especially on that first day. Um, yeah, do you have any kind of suggestions about, you know, uh, managing risk, maybe, you know, starting with an initial buy 
adding to that as the stock works? What, what are your kind of thoughts around that? Yeah, it's, it's really important. You're right. Gaps are intimidating. They can be very scary when they're straight up in the air. Um, and, and managing risk is important. I think probably the most risky is if you buy on the open, it's risky because you have no idea if the, if the day progresses, if it's going to just reverse or if it's going to continue up strong. So buying on the open is, is really um, a little more riskier than buying in this example. Buying at the close is a fairly um, solid place to buy. That's showing you the stock on a high volume close. That's where the institutions want to close that stock. So that's an important um, key level. Um, and we found that we did an extensive um, research in the study about the high volume close and how much undercut is acceptable and normal. And, um, you know, we get into this in great deal, depending on if it's a power earnings gap or if it's a more mild gap. But using the high volume close, um, you need to set a stop. And sometimes it's as simple as setting a 5% stop initially. Uh, most, most big winning gaps, most of them, don't undercut the high volume close by 5%. And now that, and that's not absolute. There are some that undercut by a lot more than that, and you have to get stopped out and be willing to accept that risk. Um, but if you do make a buy there and a stock follows through like Roku and you make a second purchase buy number two, it's very important to get your average cost. As soon as possible, you want to get that stop up to break even to kind of take the risk out of the trade. Um, and again, using some other techniques that we use in the, in the workshop, you know, we have some other levels, some other indicators, one of them is the five EMA and some other things. Um, we've got some markers and things that we'll share with people of how you control your risk. And if you've got a plan for controlling risk, it really reduces the fear factor because you want to mm -hmm. you want to feel comfortable to say, well, what's the worst that can happen is I get stopped out. And when you say I've got risk taken care of first, then you say, if this works out, I might have my hands on a real mover, which is really powerful because we know a lot of big model book stocks started with powerful earning gaps. Yeah, for sure. And another thing I'm curious about is, uh, did you guys take into account or, or take a look at um, how the current market environment impacted the success of these earning gaps? Uh, it seems like they do kind of happen in clusters and many of them work really well in clusters um, and, and they work in strong markets. But we have seen you know, a few in the recent quarter and the quarter before that. Uh, some worked, some didn't. But uh, did you guys take a look at you know, how the market was performing and, and how that impacted the success rate of, of this type of setup? Yeah, that's, that's a very important point you just made there, Richard, is, you know, earnings gaps can give you a little bit of insight to what the institutions are, what their environment is for risk. Right. Um, and we actually, in our study, I, we came up and studied the two bear market rallies in 2022. We actually studied those and say, well, how did these gaps work in a bear market environment? And we learned some interesting things that we're going to share at the workshop about how those moves work and how you can actually trade gaps in a bear market environment. Now your time frame has to be reduced, um, but it's important to see how gaps are being responded to. You know, in 2022, generally gaps were reversing and being sold into hard by institutions that were continuing to distribute stock uh, from growth names. You know, Shopify, and C, and Roku, and Square. You know, any gap was an opportunity for institutions to unload stock. Now, in January and February, 
I've been tracking gaps with Jason and I would say it's become mixed. You know, there are some that are gapping up and reversing and they're still being sold into, but the difference is there are some that are starting to work, which, you know, in growth stocks, you know, there, I think Axon and First Solar are a couple names off the top of my head. You say, these are working. So it's important to note that the environment is shifting. Even though some institutions might still be distributing stock, there are signs that some institutions are actually accumulating stock, growth stocks on gaps. So that means said that the environment is becoming more mixed, which is a whole lot better than it was in 2022. Um, now, as you know, as we go further out in the bear market, you know, we have no idea if the bear market is going to last a month, two months, six months. But watching earning gaps gives you some insight. When we start start to see more evidence that gaps are holding and starting to work, that's a really good sign for growth stocks. So it is important to be aware of the environment every earnings cycle to say, you know, are we getting half of them to hold, half of them fail? You know, last year they all failed eventually. They all nothing yep. worked. So it's different right now. January, February is showing that at least it's mixed. So that's an improvement from where we were. Um, and we're hoping that the next earnings cycle, you know, growth stocks have been so beaten down that um, we'll have to see how it plays out, but we're hoping to see. Um, more gaps hold because they they do they do have to um, they are risky but if you control your risk they do have great opportunities and that's one of the reasons we think the workshop at this time is going to be useful to people because now is the time to learn techniques learn and get prepared because even if these gaps you know three months six months from now you'll be ready you'll be ready with your strategies to buy how to buy how to control risk. Um, and be ready for the next bull market. So that's why uh, we think the timing is good for the workshop. Yeah, great. And and now I'd love to kind of pivot a little bit and and talk about kind of your thoughts on the overall market environment. And maybe you can share uh, your charting software and we can go through uh, one of the key indexes. And also you mentioned those sector ETFs that you look at. So I'd like to pick your brain on that and, and see what your process is. Yeah. So, you know, this period here from the, the rally we had in January was really strong. There were follow-through days and a lot of blue spikes and really good closes. There were a lot of subsequent follow-through days. This was a very encouraging sign. It actually was strong enough to push us above the 21, um, excuse me, the 200-day moving average. That was encouraging. And we had a, a nice um, breath thrust, whether it was a Deemer breath thrust or a Whaley breath thrust. There was a breath thrust, I think it was January. One of the breath 12th. thrusts. Um, there are a bunch of them. There were a bunch of them so yeah, telling you that there was you know, yeah. some noticeable things. Now, uh, you know, following some of that data forward, you know, there's going to be a, a give back or a pullback. And looking at some of that data told us that, at least told me that, you know, we could pull back four or 5%, no problem. And that would be absolutely normal um, within having a breath thrust. And so um, our general market videos that I've been doing, I've been kind of um, trying to keep pace with this with people. And, you know, that got back down into this area here. And about a week ago, I said, boy, we're reaching a really critical juncture here. The market's pulled back. I think it was at the time the S&P had pulled back about 6%. And that was the marker that I was using. And I said, boy, it's important that the train comes in on time here. And either the train's backing up to pick up some more passengers for the next leg up, or what's happening is, you know, we want to see a good rally and we did not get a good rally. 
we got a very weak rally that only was you know, literally a day or two. And then we had the reversal this week and, you know, with Powell's speech. And then we had the, uh, the report today on jobs. And, you know, it was all enough to really, really, um, then when you put in the banking uh, run at SVB, um, you put it all together and it was just not a good week at all. Yeah. And you had some selling in the market um, that just, you know, now we're breaking, um, you know, breaking the 50, we're breaking the 200. It was a big distribution day. So now the whole premise is really, I'm starting to, uh, you know, it's really important. The market has to either reverse really quickly next week um, and show us that, you know, this is really going to get back above here. Um, not a good sign right now. This is not good. And um, the other thing that's not good is the new highs and new lows. The NASDAQ have shifted to um, the new lows are starting to accelerate beyond 100 net new lows. And that's yep. not good. Um, so they're really increasing. It's over 250 now, I think. But that's Again, that's not what we want to see. That's not a good sign. Um, and also, I think two weeks ago, one of the early clues that I was looking at was, you know, when we had the breath thrust, I think we got 78% of New York Stock Exchange stocks got above their 200-day moving average, which was really strong. And that was confirming that this might have some legs. And I noted that within, I think it was a two-week period, we went from 78% all the way down to like 55% in two weeks. That's a really sharp reduction in stocks above the 200-day moving average. That had me raising the yellow flag. Um, and I believe today, well, yesterday, because I don't have today's data yet, um, it had fallen down to like 43%. So it's, this has been a sharp decline um, in that stocks above the 200-day moving average. Not a good sign. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty in the market still. Um, because of, you know, what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to get more aggressive? There's cross currents. Um, you know, if they push too hard, we're going to, you know, definitely go into recession, which means, you know, cyclical stocks are going to get hit hard. It goes on and on and on. About the bottom line is this rally that we saw, which looked really good, is really starting. It's failing. It's starting to fail now. Um, and it's either either it's got to show us it's going to reverse in a convincing way, or this could, you know, I don't think I don't think we're going back down to the the ultimate lows, but I do think you know the market is right now it's just trendless, it's trendless, it's news driven, it's up one day, down one day, not a great environment when you don't have a trend. Um, it's possible that we could go on. I'll say in a, a lot of zigzag in a range for for a while could go on. If, if the market doesn't bounce back quick, you know, we could come down somewhere in here between, you know, under 11,000, 10,000, hopefully get some support, but it could be in a trading range for some months here. It doesn't look good. There's a bad week this week. Um, CPI is coming out next week. So, you know, we'll see what it says and more importantly, what the Fed does at their upcoming meeting. Yeah. Could be trendless until 
you know, hopefully the next earnings cycle turns things around. But yeah, we'll have to see. And for everybody watching, we're, we're recording this on March 10th um, on Friday after the close. So uh, that's that's just for perspective. Um, John, are there any names that really stand out to you that, uh, you know, are potential leaders if things, you know, really turn around that that you're kind of watching pretty closely? Yeah, I think we talked about the chips. The chips have been very, very strong. Um, so there's a couple of chips I'll just quickly pull up. I mean, NVIDIA has been very, very strong. Look at this run. And what I like about it, when it came back for our normal reaction, right at the 20-day uh, moving average in Magenta here, game mm -hmm. got support, had an earnings gap up. And this is one of the gaps that is holding. You know, I still get came back to the 20 now, but it's still holding. And look at the blue spikes. A lot of blue spikes. That's very encouraging. NVIDIA is acting um, really well. Um, I think ACLS is another very strong stock. What's what's nice on this chart is notice how if you almost drew a line right here on a diagonal 45 degree angle, all the closes are really clustered around that 45 degree line. And look how tight it is. That's institutional buying. You can see the blue spikes. That's institutional buying. Came back to the 21 day got support. And then that really bad shakeout that occurred on, I think, the news of Tesla was going to cut silicon carbide use. And I know this particular um, uh, equipment supplier is into silicon carbide uh, to a degree. Got support. Even though it shook out, it actually came all the way back up. This happens when there's an institution that sucked up a bunch of shares. But it's obviously even a stock that's acting this strong is under pressure just from the general market. But I think it's acting real well. Um, I think that uh, ALGM has been acting real well. Um, you know, it's come back to the 21 day. What I don't like about it is two attempts at new highs have really turned into distribution um, spikes. Yeah. That's a cautionary sign with that one. Um, a couple other names in some different areas. Um, I think the... Um, some of the entertainment leisure stock, the gaming stocks have acted really, really well. This is Wynn Resorts. Um, you've got a nice uptrend here. Um, you can see that, look at the blue spikes. These are significant blue spikes and very few red, this is a daily chart. Now, even today, which the market had a horrible day, you can see that this volume picked up. It's just below the 20, 21 day uh, moving average. So I think that's acting well. I think another one in the group is Las Vegas Sands. Um, looks like it's come back to the 50-day, but it's generally um, acting well. We talked about um, some other stocks. Axon um, had a gap up. Got a nice story here, I think, with this one. Um, had a nice earnings report, but I think it's you know it's just the pressure is on the market here, calling it to pull in a little bit. Uh, First Solar, I think, is another one which is you know, gapped out, gapped out of the base, and it's actually had follow through, and it's come back and holding with the volume receding. So that's a really good sign. Um, so those are a few of the names that, you know, off the top of my head that are still acting well. If you start to see them roll over, then I think um, yeah. I'd get real concerned. Yeah, they're, they're the canaries in the coal mine for sure. And, and this FSLR move actually started from an earnings gap way back here on, on huge volume. Uh, which is definitely one to go back and study. Right. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Duolingo because that's another recent earnings gap that is still holding up reasonably well, although, of course, it, it's feeling some pressure the past two days. 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not that familiar with this. You can see the gap. This is the gap in the base, but obviously only a day later I got out of the base. Um, so again, it had some good volume there, good gap up. Um, the relative strength has really picked up. You know, it's pulling back in. I mean, kind of natural, these stocks that kind of break out to new highs. The market is still, usually breakouts are pulling back in. Um, and that's what this one seems to be doing. So I guess depends on where you're positioned. You know, if you're positioned uh, on the gap day, a little different than if, uh, you know, the, uh, the other days. But, you know, from what I see on this chart, it seems normal so far. The volume's receded on the pullback, but it looks okay. Yeah, everything's getting pulled back by the market a little bit. The, the, the yeah, the way the market right now is pulling back a lot of names. Yeah, perfect. Are there any other names that you think are worth going over? Uh, I don't have any off the top of my head. I do. I do. Well, I will call a couple of my names that I think are related to the AI story. It was a lot about AI. I think New Relic is one. Again, this was a gap up, really good earnings report. Look at the earnings estimates. The 24-year yeah. estimate is very, very good. Um, so that it was an interesting name. Um, I tried to play this gap. I eventually got stopped out. Um, but it's kind of, again, it's being pulled down. Um, so it's. I think it's one to keep on your watch list. And I think the mm -hmm. other, other name that was out there was AYX. Um, now this one, looked very promising, had some nice move up off the bottom of the base, but it tried to break out and it's really, really been hit hard. Um, so that one, even though it has some really good estimates um, related to you know analytics and AI intelligence, um, looks like it's gonna need, gonna need some more time. You know, uh, AI is one that a lot of people are following. It's had some, some pretty spectacular uh, jumps, but you'll notice that even these, these, these run-ups you know, it's dangerous. I mean, it's tricky. They, they you can see this is a hard sell-off. Um, then it got together. It had its earnings, another nice spike, but you know, it's kind of really, really trailed off again. So, you really have to uh, be disciplined and control your risk. I mean, if you get in at the right time, you know, you could do well. Um, but it, again, the environment is such that gaps are are not sticking um, in earnest yet. Um, but these are names that I'd keep on your on your watch list because they, um, they have some interesting stories. Yeah, perfect. And could you, using one of these stocks, just as an example, talk about uh, how you would set alerts to kind of notify you about, you know, potential setup getting close to being ready um, so you can kind of monitor it while, while you're working full time? Well, I'll go back to New Relic just uh, because I have traded this. I bought this stock and um, I got stopped out for a 5% loss, but you know, it hasn't, it hasn't broken down. And so I'm looking to say, if this doesn't completely break down, I'm saying if, if this high volume close day here, which was the big gap day, um, I would set an alert close to that. As you can see, I have an alert set there on that. I, if this stock could um, come back up through the high volume close, I probably would buy it mm -hmm. to show it re, retaking that high volume close saying the demand has come back. And maybe after this little basing period, um, it could make a move. So I would put an alert, you know, let's see, this stock has a uh, high volume close at 76.50. So I would probably set an alert maybe at 75.50 to tell me that it's getting close. And then I keep my eye on it. Or if I felt really good, I'd place the order at a buy stop just above the high volume close, buy stop limit order. And uh, 
if I was fortunate and it moved, I would uh, take the trade. That's one that I would keep my eye on for how I would set an alert. Yeah, perfect. I think that's a great example. And I'll go ahead and stop your screen sharing here. Uh, I always like to close it out with kind of a, a, a few kind of uh, final questions. Uh, first things first, uh, what kind of advice you have uh, for traders uh, who want to get better at this, take it more seriously, and overall improve their performance? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, my advice would be, this is really important. Um, it's important to start building sound habits from the start. And what I mean by that is, you know, cutting losses, managing your risk, um, consciously thinking about position sizes, having good selection criteria for stocks you're interested in and align with your time frame, is really important. And I say that if you're a new trader and you may say, well, I have a small account, I don't have to worry about those things. That's the wrong approach. If you have a small account, you wanna start with good sound habits because those are gonna help you make um, ingrain those habits. They're gonna help you eventually scale up your account as you're making progress. That's important. And we talked about it earlier, Richard, you know, if you, if you have bad habits, you don't have some good rule sets, even if you're making money, it's dangerous because those bad habits are eventually gonna take that money away from you because you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna make mistakes and you're gonna lose your hard earned money. And when you, and if you work in an environment with bad habits for a year or two, and you ingrain those bad habits, they're really hard to break because you've almost been reinforced by them saying, well, they can't be bad because I made money using them. And that's where the combination, uh, the market will teach you differently down the road with those bad habits. So try to start with really good sound habits. And the second, or that's the third thing I would mention is mm -hmm. repetition. And um, when you're trying to build sound habits, um, sometimes sound habits are counter to conventional thinking. You know, buying at new highs or cutting losses, managing risk closely. So you want to, in a way, reprogram your brain with good habits. So reading, um, listening to positive you know, podcasts, reading books by some of the really, really accomplished authors and re-listen to stuff like read Bill's book two, three times a year. Listen to uh, podcasts with David Ryan or IBD Live or other traders that are in the same methodology as you. And believe it or not, subconsciously that repetition starts to build into your brain. And that's really important because there are some things about trading that are counter to normal thinking. And so um, you have to keep reprogramming yourself in a way through repetition. Yeah, perfect. And uh, I know you had a slide with those recommended books that you had, uh, if you want to bring that up quickly. Um, yeah, because, you know, rereading the best books is better than, you know, casting a super wide net and reading something that's outside your methodology that's going to kind of distract you. Uh, so what are what are kind of your recommended books uh, that you suggest that traders out there uh, pick up who, who are similar, similar vein, position trading, uh, can slim foundation. So some books, these are some of the books that I uh, think are really interesting. Some of them are obvious. I think Bill's book is obviously, you know, one of the go-to Bibles. You'll notice that some of the other books that I think are really important, you don't hear about. Um, this one here is called Psychology of the Stock Market. It's actually a 58 page pamphlet and it costs $6. That's this one right here. Um, but it's really good about psychology of the market. This book also, um, Why You Win or Lose, was written in 1920. 
1930. And it's really cheap, really good, <laughs> really good on the market. Um, another one that's old, 1927, is the business of trading in stocks. So you probably, many people probably haven't heard of these. You might want to look at these if you're interested. They're really good about um, psychology because the same psychology they were dealing with in the 1920s is what we deal with today. Um, the other one that's kind of a, a, a triple play by Justin Mamis. Justin Mamis was a really um, good market technician. He wrote the, um, I think it was a tape reader um, newsletter with uh, Stan Weinstein for a long period of time in the 70s and 80s. And he actually wrote three books. And I think they're very, very good. One's called The Nature of Risk. One's How to Buy. One's How to Sell. And there's some really good stuff in those books. You um, So look for Justin Mamish. They're still out there. Um, there's a few things that are dated and don't apply to today's market because there's so much electronic trading, but you'll sift through it. There's still some timeless stuff in there. It's good. And I think the uh, Trading in the Zone by Mark Douglas is just a classic, excellent book. Um, so much great information in there about uh, you know, mindset. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I'll, there's, there's definitely some new ones on here for me, so I'll definitely check those out. Uh, John, thank you so much for your time and, and, and sharing your thoughts and, and also creating these slides for us. Um, where can people find out more about you, your trading style, and and uh, learn learn more from you in general? I, you've, of course, got your Twitter handle right there uh, that I'll also have linked down below. But uh, where else can people reach out to you or uh, seek you out? Yeah, actually, um, a number of different places. Um, I have a YouTube channel, Rain King LLC. And if you can put that link in there, that'd be great. I, um, I issue general market updates. I try to do them weekly or every two weeks. Um, a lot of people have enjoyed those. So that's one place to stay in touch with me. Um, I try to tweet. Um, not a big, I don't tweet all the time, but when I try to treat, uh, tweet, I try to make it meaningful. Um, also, you can go to the Boston IBD meetup. You go to meetup.com and you search Boston IBD Investors Business Daily Meetup. You can join that group and you'll get invitations to all of our meetings. That's another way you can find me. Um, so there's a few ways there you can find me. And if you really want to reach out to me, uh, my email, rainkingbullbear uh, at gmail. And uh, be happy to take a question or two if you have something on your mind. Yeah, great. John, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, to everybody watching, I hope you guys enjoyed this. And if you did, go ahead and leave a like. Uh, subscribe down below as well. Uh, and John, thanks again for, for sharing your knowledge and your experience. And uh, we'll see you guys in future videos. Take care. Thanks so much, Richard. It was a pleasure.